All right, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, the letter to the church in Thyatira, Thyatira, um, to the, if you have a subheading there, this church has uh, been, um, they wear the name the corrupt church, and we'll see why when we read through this. And it says in verse 18, and to the church of the church of Thyatira, and to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write, these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I, verse 23, will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, to you I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. Behold, fast. What you have till I come, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule with a rod of iron. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed like pieces of potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. <clears throat> and I will give him the morning star. So, verse 29, he who has... In ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Father, as we study through these verses, I pray that would be true here, that we would have the ear that would hear what you have to say to us this morning. Father, we may glean um, from your word, and may we grow, Lord, um, and be sanctified so we may be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, ironically, <clears throat> as we begin back in verse 18, this letter is the longest <clears throat> excuse me, of the letters that are sent to the churches. Of all the letters sent to the churches, this is the longest one, and yet it was sent to the church in the very small city, and um, out of the seven different cities that we've been talking about. And we read through these, we've studied through Ephesus and Pergamos and Laodicea, excuse me, not Laodicea yet, but um, these other churches that we've, we've read about, these were great churches and, 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 or great cities that these churches were found in, and they were very, they had great significance. And, and Thyatira had some significance as well, but it was, as I said, the least significant out of the seven cities that Jesus addressed. And, and um, yet what we see is that um, they were not hidden to him. And lots of times we feel that way in regards to our own significance. We may think that we're, we're um, not noticed, that we're not um, 
that people aren't paying attention, but, but Jesus does. He sees, he notices. He notices the great things as well as what man may even say is a little thing. And Thyatira was a small military town. It was located about 45 miles south of Pergamus, and it was a strategic city for the Roman Empire, for the Roman military, in that it was literally the last line of defense against anyone who wanted to attack the capital city of Pergamus. If you remember, we talked about last week, week the, 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 it was the political capital of the Roman Empire there in Asia Minor, and, and the, it was the seat of the, the Roman governor that ruled or resided over all of all of Asia Minor. And so Thyatira was significant in the sense that um, you had to go through it in order to get to Pergamos. If you wanted to attack the Romans and their seat of power there, you had to go through Thyatira. Now Thyatira was on a heavily traveled route. And even though it was small in population, it did have a uh, commercial center of commerce, and it was famous for its dyes. That's what it was known for, especially the color purple. Uh, which was worn by royalty in those days and by those who were rich or prominent. It was a rare color, and it was very expensive. And the city was also known for a a pagan temple, as most of these cities had at least one um, of these Greek cities, these Roman cities, or these Greek cities that the Romans were now ruling at this time. They, they, They all had these temples that were dedicated to these different gods. And Thyatira was noted for their temple that had been dedicated to Apollo. And we know that Apollo, when you study out uh, Greek and Roman history, that, that uh, both the Greeks and the Romans worshipped Apollo as the sun god, right? And this could be one of the reasons for why Jesus, in verse 18, introduces himself as the, quote-unquote, son of God, Right? Kind of a play on words there. Now, it's, it's not known for sure how the church in Thyatira was started, but it's likely that there, it, it, it was um, at least, for, it, we don't know if she started it, but at, at the very least, we, can know, we know that she played an important role in, in the church there, and it was a lady by the name of Lydia, and you may have heard of her before. Um, and, and, and many even suggest that the church was started in her home, And according to Acts chapter 16, we're told that Paul, during his second missionary journey, went through Macedonia as the Spirit led him and prohibited him from going into other places. And when he reached the city of Philippi, he encountered, he he met a lady, uh, this lady Lydia, who was from, we're told, Thyatira. Now, the city of Philippi was 250 miles from Thyatira, and Lydia had traveled there in order to sell the purple dye that was manufactured in her hometown. Yet upon her encounter with Paul, we're told in Acts chapter 16, that the Lord opened up her heart to heed the things that were spoken by Paul, and as a result, Lydia and those in her household came to believe in Jesus and were baptized. Now, this message... Jesus sent to the church here in Thyatira, if you, if you, you, I'm sure you picked up on it, it was a message of severe warning. It was a message of judgment. And, and I think this more so explains the reason why Jesus identified himself to them, first and foremost, as the Son of God. But the Son of God, he said, whose eyes are like 
flames of fire and feet like fine brass. And by describing himself with this title, Jesus was directly and clearly pointing to his deity, literally to the fact that he is God in the flesh, the highly exalted one who is worthy to be worshipped, whose name is above every other name, the one who possesses the authority, all authority and all power to, to judge. And we can discern this because in regards to the Jewish way of thinking, <clears throat> the Jewish way of thinking was that the son, to be the son of a thing, meant you had the very nature of that thing. And, and when Jesus was walking the earth and he made claim to be the son of God, um, that's one of the reasons why the, the Pharisees who were against him were so worked up when he said that. It's, it's much different thinking than one of us would say, well, my father is so-and-so, and I am his son, and, 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 and it's different in this situation that Jesus is making this claim. And so in the fact that Jesus' eyes here are being described like flames of fire, if you begin to think about that, it's, it's really identifying this penetrating and searching judgment of God. And when we begin to look at Thyatira as the smallest city, the, perhaps the least significant out of the seven, and I already mentioned that, that in relationship to God um, seeing the great things and, 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 and great churches and uh, people who do great things and their great works, we know that, that through this letter to Thyatira that God sees small churches and small cities and even, even things that we may see as not so significant as others that are that are being done other works that are being done by people around us but also i think um and and remember i want to share with you that i was raised in the catholic church and so i think that they're not exclusive in ownership of this but i think lots of times we think that god only sees the great sin in our lives you know the catholic church has what's called these 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 you have mortal sins and 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 sins that aren't mortal and and as if um, sin has some kind of um, effect or consequent in, into eternity based upon how great your sin is. As a matter of fact, I always told that there was lies and there was white lies. Well, that's not biblical. Sin is sin. And, and even the little sins had to be paid for by the blood of Jesus. And even the little sins that aren't confessed and repented and paid for by Christ, the ones that aren't so significant by our judgment of things are, 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 are still sins that will keep you out of heaven. And, and, and we, I think, in our own lives begin to justify and begin to, 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 to um, make excuses for what we do by, by going, well, that's not such a bad thing. And yet, when we read this message to Thyatira and this, this character or Jesus, how Jesus is describing himself to the penetrating and searchment of, searching judgment of God, I think that it shows us that there's nothing, once again, hidden from the Lord. The great things, as well as the things that we go, well, that's just a little thing, right? That's not such a big deal. And, and, and God sees it all. In light of this, Jesus wanted his church in Thyatira to know that he, the Son of God, that he was looking at them very closely. Remember in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10, God said this. He said, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his way, according to the fruit of his doings. And the point is, is that Jesus, who, who identifies himself as the Son of God, he does not see as man sees. 
even as we see things. And his eyes of fire are searching our minds and searching our hearts, penetrating into the places that no one else can see. And he is intimately aware of all we think, all that we say, and all that we do. Nothing is hidden from him. In fact, the secret things we do when no one else is around and the things on the inside that no one is able to see, Jesus knows. It's known by him. He's able to see these hidden things. And in Psalm chapter 33, David writes in verses 13 through 15, and he says this, The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his place of dwelling, he looks at all the inhabitants of the earth, and he forms the hearts of all who consider all of their works. And so this issue of seeing is then brought into the context of God's going to do something about it. The things that he sees, the things that he knows, the things that we think aren't as significant as other things, even the hidden things that we try to, to hide from others, God sees them and he considers the works, meaning he's going to do something about it. He's faithful to do so. And the truth is, is guys, we might be able to fool one another. We can fool one another by, you know, even by dressing a certain way, by acting a certain way, by putting on this outward, at times, appearance of holiness, and even do so when there's severe problems going on on the inside. But Jesus, the Son of God, with his eyes of fire, make notice, make, 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 count it true, is that he's a discerner of our, of our thoughts. Not just our thoughts, but of the motives and of our deeds and, and, and so he's the discerner of our thoughts and, and also of the motives of our deeds. And, and in essence, what we're being told here is you can't fool me, is what Jesus is saying. I can't be fooled. And so here in verse 18, as Jesus identifies himself to the church of Thyatira, what he's knowing is he's letting him know that he, the Son of God, who alone is worthy to be worshipped, God in the flesh, and he's looking at them, specifically to hold them to an account, to judge them, to judge the inner parts that no one else can see. And as Jesus speaks about what he saw in them, he, as is custom with all of these letters, he begins by acknowledging good things. And he said in verse 19, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, I love this, as for your works, the last are more than the first. Last are more than the first. And in this verse, Jesus prays the church. You can count it there. If you're keeping notes, you might want to write it out. But five attributes that they outwardly exampled. Jesus sees the outward things as well as the inward. And so he notices these things. He says, I see these things. And these five things are their works and service, their love, their faith, and their patience. And as, as with the other churches, Jesus first recognized their works the things that they were doing. But it's interesting to note that as Jesus spoke, he spoke of their works. He, he mentioned or highlights an additional attribute that no other church is spoken of here. None, this attribute's not spoken about any of, their, of these other churches. An attribute tied to their works and to their service saying that their most recent works, their most recent works were greater than their first. In other words, they were doing I know it seems simplistic, but, but bear with me as we go on, as I just kind of lay it out. They were doing more works and serving more than when they had first come to believe. 
And I believe this is important for us to take note of because many people I've seen, they start their Christian walk on the right track in that they are excited to be involved in whatever the church is doing. And because of a fresh and new kind of love for Jesus, that same thing that we've experienced when we first came to the Lord, there's this motivation, there's this great desire to be at church. Whenever it's open, whatever they have going on, I'm going to be there. And in addition to being there, you know, it's this, this desire, this motivation to be involved in any way that we can. But we rightly believe we do this because we rightly believe that the opportunity to serve Jesus and to serve his people, we believe that it's a joy. We believe that it's a blessing. However, if we're not careful, our love for Jesus can fade. Matter of fact, that was the, the message to the church in Ephesus, right? Our love for Jesus can fade. And in kind, our excitement and our desire to serve God and to serve others can grow cold. Because our love for him grows cold, our acts of service and our love for others can grow cold. And on the inside, the place that Jesus sees, the place that he knows, we begin to think that, that being at church and serving is a burden. We believe that it's not a blessing, that there's no joy there. Consequently, our works and our acts of giving and our, and our acts of service are less than when we first began, not more. But this is not how it was for the Christians here in Thyatira. The last were more than the first, whose works and service were more. And it should not be this way for us. This message that's being spoken to here, this praise is something that should be praiseworthy in our own lives. It should be found to be true in our own lives. And the bottom line is, is the longer that we walk with Jesus, the more we come to know him, the more we come to understand him. And this greater knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is, it should increase our love for him. It should increase our desire to serve him, to follow after him. Now, the second thing that Jesus recognized and praised the church of Thyatira for was the fact that they were filled with love. And I think that this kind of builds upon itself in that it explains why their works and their acts of service were more than their first. They were in love with Jesus. And Jesus praises that for, for, praises them for, for their love for him. They were filled with, filled with love. And this is because, uh, and, and like I said, it can explain why their works and services were more because love is what motivates us. Love literally compels us to serve and to follow after Jesus. And, 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 and when love is flowing out of our lives, is this not the greatest evidence that testifies to the fact that we're followers of Jesus? When love is flowing out of our lives, it is the greatest evidence that testifies to the fact that we're followers of Jesus. In fact, the love that God has given to us, which is now inside of us, is supposed to be flowing through us, and it's the first thing that an unbelieving world recognizes and, 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 and is, recognizes, excuse me, that, is outward, that outwardly reveals to them that we have become inwardly something different. 
Love, again, let me say that, it outwardly reveals to the unbelieving world that we've inwardly become something different. And, the, and, and, and this is one of the reasons for why Jesus had said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he says, a new command I give to you. What is it? You guys know it. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he goes this. He says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, because Jesus praised the church at Thyatira for their love, we can rightly conclude, and, and, and I, 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 I want to do this next step because in the world that we live, live in, love can, even, can be so arbitrary anymore. You know, I've heard it said you can love tacos and love your wife, right? But you don't want to love your wife like you love tacos, and, and when we look at the world's kind of love and biblical love, we want to recognize there's a difference here. And so when we talk about love and Thyatira, we can rightly conclude when Jesus praises them for their love, think about this in relationship to our own lives, we can conclude that they were, first of all, they were long-suffering. We can conclude that they were kind that, were, that they were humble, they had humility, they were compassionate, they were gracious, and, and ultimately, in for, and, and I even think in foremostly, they were other-centered. Considering this is how the Bible defines love, the biblical definition of love that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Love is patient, love is kind. In addition to acknowledging these great attributes, we see that, that the eyes of, of the Son of God, that the eyes of the Son of God that saw, if you will, these Christians, that he saw that they had faith. They had works and service which were greater than when they first began. They had love, but they also, he said, had faith. Jesus says, I see this. It's not an insignificant thing. And this is, this is important, especially since they were a church whose acts of service increased as they grew in the Lord. And I think it's important because many people wrongly believe one or two things, one of two things in regards to good works. The first thing that Jesus said he saw and praised them for. And the first thing that people wrongly conclude, and we've talked about this in previous letters, so I don't want to go over it too much again, but they wrongly conclude that it is works that can save them. People believe that. Or, or they believe that even if they're not saved by their good works, then their salvation is somehow sustained by our good works. And what I have found truly is, is and I use this word loosely, non-religious people, okay, and, and I don't like that word religious, but the people who don't go to church, people who don't read their Bible, the people that you come in and in, in encounter with in everyday life, and you begin to talk to them about Jesus, in some form or some fashion, when you talk to them about it, they're going to tell you that they don't have a need for Jesus, God, the Bible, because they're a good person. They believe they're a good person. They have good works. And so the, the, the unbelieving world really, in a sense, are the ones that mostly testify of, of their good works. And, and as, as a means for salvation. Now that is also a false doctrine in some churches. But the second aspect of this is really a, a disease, if you will, that, 
that influences believers. It's a cancer that can corrupt our mind where we somehow begin to think that we know that we've been saved by faith, but we come to this understanding, we wrongly move into this place that some, we somehow think that our salvation is sustained by our good works. And then this is the second way of thinking. But remember, in Ephesians chapter 2, many other passages like it, it clearly teaches that salvation is not earned by works, nor is it sustained by our works. Rather, salvation is given to us by God's grace, literally his unmerited favor, and it is received through our faith in Jesus, the Son of God, who did all of the work for us when he died on the cross to save us and to sustain us. And, and the church in Thyatira must have had incredible faith, as, as, as Jesus acknowledged it, incredible faith in order for the Son of God, whose eyes sees the secret things, he must have had incredible faith for him to praise them for their faith. But the fact that they had faith also meant that they were not compu- confused by their good works into thinking that they themselves were good. And that's the problem that we face in regards to our salvation being sustained because we, 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 we know that in the Lord we are righteous. It's not of our own righteousness, and we know that we're called to good works, but yet when we begin to do good works that God has, has ordained for us, we can wrongly somehow lay hold of those as if it's us and go, look at the good that I've done. Look at how good that I am. I go to church. I read my Bible. And it's a trap that the enemy can use in our own lives, and it's something we have to be aware of. And and if we want to continue to live by faith and walk by faith, a type of faith that's acknowledged and recognized by the Son of God who can see all things, then we have to continue to live in this place where faith reveals to us our need for a sustainer as well as a Savior, one who sustains us in this walk that we're on, in this journey that we're in. And because of their faith, they understood. This is ultimately what it comes down to. They understood where their hope was. See, faith leads us to this place of hope. And what are you putting your hope in? Is it in yourself? Or is it in Jesus Christ? And clearly, they put their faith in Jesus not in the things that they did. And they pointed people to Jesus and they brought glory to his name. And the fact of the matter is is that we cannot know or understand God or his will for our lives unless we are exercising faith, walking in faith, living in faith. And ultimately, faith boils down to this, this issue of lordship once again. Is he your Lord? And faith is the key that ultimately opens up our eyes to see and opens up our hearts to believe and know Jesus. And the more we exercise our faith, you want to know what? The more we will know him. That's the cool thing about it. And the last attribute that Jesus praised Thyatira for was their patience. I really like to just skip over this last one. Um, But it was their patience. And I believe this is now this guys, this is a, a very good thing to be recognized for. I don't think that's something I'm recognized for in general, is my patience, to my own shame. Some of you giggle. <laughs> but I desire that. 
And we should desire that, to be recognized for patience. Sadly, we live in a society that wants everything right now. And patience is not an attribute we really want to practice. In fact, we spend a lot of money and a lot of effort so that we can get something quicker or go somewhere faster. Yet in, the, in the, this word patience, really what it refers to is endurance. It refers to perseverance. And these are traits, these are attributes that we as Christians are called to exercise over and over and over again, to have endurance, to have perseverance. Why? In order that, the Bible says every single time, in order that, in one way or or, or another, it says in order that God might develop his character in us. The sanctifying process, this being conformed into the image of, of, of God's Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it's one of these passages that says that. And of course, James writes, and he says, Brother, my, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. And patience is something I think that we, would want, we all would want God to give us, but it's not something that we, would want, we necessarily want to be developed in us. However, patience can only be developed in us when we're given the opportunity to exercise patience. And so we need to take advantage of those opportunities that God places in front of us. We need to embrace them, as James says, counting it all joy so that his perfect will is done in us and through our lives. And so in light of all these good things that God commended or praised the church in Thyatira for, I think it would be hard for us to, if we just kind of stop there, if that's all we were told, it would be really hard to imagine there could be anything wrong with this church. Their good works, their service, their, their love, their, their, their faith. But there were things wrong. And in verses 20, verse 20, Jesus said this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idol. And again, idols. And that's, that's, a, that's a repeated theme out of Pergamos with the with uh, uh, Balak and Baal and, and Balaam as we were reading about that last week and one of the problems that that church had that ultimately led them into sexual immorality and things that were being sacrificed to idols. And he said in verse 21, I love this, he says, and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Guys, I wanna start off by saying there are lots of times in our lives where we've entered into sin, big sin or little sin, Okay, whatever we want to categorize it for in our mind, and we, we think that we're getting away with it, we think that, that God doesn't see it or he's not going to do anything about it, and really what's, what's been going on, if you're in that place, God's given you this time to repent. But what we see here in this letter is that, that, that those times for that, where God's doing a work in us, drawing us to him, to repent, to turn away, is that there comes a time where God goes, okay, enough. We're going to deal with this now. And he exposes it. And that's what we see here. And Jesus said here that this is what he was doing. And the bottom line is that there's, guys, think about this. There is no amount of love 
No amount of sacrificial works that we can do that, com- that can compensate for the tolerance of evil or sin in our lives or in the world around us that we live in. Let me say that again. There is no amount of love or sacrificial works that we can do that will somehow compensate for this tolerance of evil or sin in our lives or, or in the world around us. But the church in Tyra was doing this. This is exactly what they were doing. By permitting this evil woman who had given herself this title of prophetess to teach the people false things and leave some of them into this place of compromise. Now, it's, it's not likely that this woman was actually called Jezebel. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was her name. But, but more than likely, what, we, what appears here, it appears to be this it appears to be symbolic of the name and designed again to direct us to the Old Testament uh, and and um, a, a, an Old Testament person that it was well known in um, Jewish history, Jezebel, and and I think this word this name is used here in order to give a graphic picture of what Jesus thinks about this false teacher and and and, and exactly to let us know how he feels about the evil things that she and those who were following her were doing. And in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 19, we're told that Jezebel, she was the daughter of, of uh, Ethabal, the Sidonian king, and she was given as a wife to Ahab, a king of Israel, who this is what it says about him and really about her as well. That they did, he did, they did, <laughs> more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the other kings that came before him. That's not a good thing to be noted for. And we know that Israel had had some pretty bad kings. He did more evil in the sight of the Lord and and raising the Lord to the place of anger than than any other king had done before him. And, and, And this woman along with her husband, Jezebel, and Ahab, did evil in the sight of the Lord, is what we're told, and they led the nation of Israel deep into idolatry, specifically through the worship of the Sidonian god Baal. In fact, Jezebel was put to death, or excuse me, Jezebel put to death all the true priests, the Levitical priests at the time, and all the prophets of God, and replaced them with the prophets of Baal. Raised up a whole nother pagan priesthood. And the worship of Baal, like many other worship practices of other pagan gods, included immoral sexual acts. And this was something the Son of God said was being taught by this woman in Thyatira and consequently was being practiced as a result by some of the members there in the church. And even though this, even though all idolatry even though all idolatry may not be directly tied to sexual immorality, all idolatry is on, on, on every level an act of sexual <coughs> excuse me <coughs> it's an act of spiritual adultery against God. That's how he sees it. Even though there may not be a, a, a sexual aspect of it in regards to the worship of, of it, but all idolatry is, a spiritual, an act of spiritual adultery against God. And this was the core offense of the church in Thyatira against the Son of God, whose eyes, like flames of fire, had looked into the heart of the woman and into the heart of those 
who had followed her false teachings. Jesus says, I see your spiritual adultery. And like a husband who, had, who has been betrayed by his unfaithful wife, Jesus was seeing the adultery that he had committed against him. That's a pretty powerful thought. And the point is, is we, the church, are called the bride of Christ, are we not? And Jesus is identified as the groom, our groom, who will one day return for us, his bride. And Scripture also tells us that like any husband does, Jesus expects for us, his bride, to keep ourselves pure, to keep ourselves uncorrupted and unspotted from him, for him. And this means that Jesus needs to be the first in our lives. He alone is the one that we are to follow. He is the, lone, the one that we are to obey. He alone is the one that we are to worship. He alone is who we allow to have control over our lives. No one else, not any other thing. And certainly, guys, not ourselves. And I say that because the, the biggest problem with idolatry that we have is the worship of self in this country. And so the church at Thyatira was, was tolerant towards idolatry and towards sexual immorality. And, and, and because of this, they become known as the corrupt church for allowing this Jezebel to deceive and lead the people of the church into sin. They were tolerant. Again, a word that should never be used in, in, in describing who we are. They were tolerant. And so an, ever, an even greater condemnation was spoken against them when Jesus said that they were unwilling to repent. Think about that. It's a whole other thing to be in sin and another thing to, rip, to be unwilling to repent. <clears throat> and in verse 21, look, the Lord said that he had given the false prophetess time to repent and, and really what that means is opportunity to repent, and yet she refused. And in light of this, it's important to point out that Jesus is long-suffering. He's merciful. He is not simply waiting for us to make a mistake so that he can just judge us and punish us. Yet many people have this wrong view about God as they think that God does not love them and that he is only out to get them. But the fact of the matter is that God desires, his desires for all men to repent, for all men to turn back to him. Us as well. One of my favorite Old Testament verses, and, I, and I, I love this verse, and I've memorized it because so many people today say that, I, how can I, I can't love a God of the Old Testament, you know? He's so, he's killing everybody, and he's so angry, and, and he's just out to get everybody. Well, this is what God says about himself. He says, as I live, Ezekiel 33:11, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Also in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, you know it. It tells us that God is not slack. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness. But is long-suffering towards us, not willing that, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And lots of times, guys, when we read that verse, that verse, we think about someone else, usually someone else who has sinned against us or someone else who's, who's gone astray. And it's like, God, what are you waiting so long for? Go get them. We usually don't think that about ourselves. Lord, you're so slack concerning your, your, your discipline and judgment in my life. 
what are you doing? Are you not even going to do anything about it? That's not how we usually apply that, but understand he's not slack. But he's patient and long-suffering because he desires that we come to repentance rather than suffer the consequences. And God has been long-suffering. God had been, he says, long-suffering with this woman and and long-suffering with those who were following her, giving them opportunity, giving them time to repent. Yet what we see here is that this woman was defiant is what we're told, and she would not repent, so judgment was coming. And may that not be said about us today. But even in verse 22, we read that God in his mercy was still giving those who were following her, even now with this letter, Get this, another opportunity to repent. Another opportunity to repent. However, he reminded them and he warned them saying that he was the God who searches. He is the God who searches. Once again, literally the God that can see into the hearts and the minds and knows the thoughts and motives and that he would not be fooled and he would know if they had truly repented. And God knows. God knows. And if they did not repent, they too would be judged according to their works. In fact, the Lord said if they did not repent, not only would they be judged, but they would also think about this. And this is this is kind of, this is this needs to be a fearful thing in our lives. It does. It needs to be a motive because what he ultimately said to him is that if you don't repent, when you're judged, when you're disciplined, you're going to become an example to everyone else around you. You're going to be an example, he said, to all the other churches. And the truth is, if you've ever been made an example of what not to do or an example of what happens when you're outside of the will of God, you know that this kind of example is something that you do not want to be. And the Bible's full of guys, men and women alike, that have been that example of what not to do. And in verse 24, as we wrap it up, it says, Now I say to you and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, so the doctrine of, of Jezebel, the things that was she was teaching, and, and those who do not know the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. Okay? So Jesus is saying, if you hold fast, there's, 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 there's not a whole bunch of condemnation coming if you repent there's no other there's no condemnation coming he says but hold fast to what you have till i come hold fast to what you have until i come and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end to him i will give power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and they shall be dashed into pieces like the potter's vessels as I have also received from my Father. And we know that Jesus has is is been given all things. It's his inheritance, but we're also co-inheritors, those who overcome, and that's what Jesus is speaking of, and he's speaking in an aspect of our, of our inheritance, right? And it goes on in verse 28, and he says, I will still give him, the one who overcomes, the morning star. So he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These last verses in all of these letters, I don't know about you, they're, they're, my, they're my most favorite. You know, last week it was the hidden manna, right? And, and the white stone that had uh, a hidden name on it. And, and, the, and what that, that promise of those to the overcomer, the one to overcome, is that God's going to give us this provision that no one else knows of, that, that no one can take away. 
and, and the white stone. I don't want to get to all that. There's so many different um, uh, things that that refers to of what we have in Christ, these blessings that we receive from him. And these blessings, these promises also contain <clears throat> wonderful blessings. And in these final verses, it makes it clear that, that, first of all, I want to point out that not everyone in this church was unfaithful to the Lord. There was a group that attached themselves to this woman. Uh, there was a group that had separated themselves from Jezebel's false teaching. And, and, and for this group that lived separate, he had a special word from them, a word to hold fast until he came to them. And this word was an encouragement, I think, to persevere. To persevere in the good things that Jesus had praised them for. To, to endure, to continue on in good works, in love, in faith, in patience, and in their fight against evil. And if they did so, Jesus then promised to reward those who would overcome for their faithfulness to him. And to the believers in Thyatira, if Debbie and the worship team wants to come up, we're going to end here. The believers in Thyatira, he promised to give them authority over the nations. And, and, and which, which probably, and, 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 and I speak this out because there's, there's some other interpretations into this, but I think when you read it contextually, speaking of end times and what's to come, this is what you have to conclude. It refers to a time when God's people, when we who endure, when we who overcome, it says we'll live and reign with Jesus. That time is spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. You can go and read it this week on your own. It's a good chapter. Go read it. And the amazing thing about this promise is literally what we're being told is that we're going to be given a share or a portion of his kingdom. That's pretty cool. Of the kingdom that he, he's purchased with his own blood. And, and that kingdom encompasses so many things. And is, it, is, it, is he king over all of the nations of the earth at the time? He's, yeah, he's king of kings and lord of lords. But there's so much more to that because he's... He's the king of heaven and earth. And what we're being told is that we're going to give, be given a portion of his kingdom. He's going to appoint a portion of it to us. Portion it out. Like, much like the children of Israel, when they came into the, to the, to the promised land, they were given a portion, right? It was allotted to them. God's got an allotment of his kingdom for you so that you can rule and reign by your Savior's side. But the greater promise is given in verse 28. And, and, and to have a piece of God's kingdom, that's pretty cool. But the greater promise, the greater gift is in verse 28 where Jesus says the overcomer will be given the morning star. And when you look to Revelation chapter 22 verse 16, we know without a doubt that the morning star is Jesus Christ. He is the bright and morning star. So this promise is... What it's suggesting to us is that God's people, think about this. I don't know if you, it's, it's an amazing thought. It's a mind-blowing thought, actually. It suggests that God's people, that we shall so closely be identified with Jesus that he will belong to us and we'll belong to him. I am my beloved and he is mine. And there's this oneness that is being spoken of here. And, and I think the best, this, this really, it's, 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 this, it's the only really earthly 
example we have to Ina kind of give us any idea of what that is like, but it's this is what happens in some sense between a man and woman in marriage. The two shall no longer be 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 separate, they shall become one. And I don't know what that means in regards to to this this how that that really plays out with, with Jesus Christ for all time and eternity. But what Jesus is saying is, is he's giving us him to us. And we shall be so close, so closely identified with him that he will belong to us. And so God's exhortation to the church is repent. What does that mean? Change your mind. Change your mind. You see, I love this because sometimes we get focused on the fact that lost sinners are the ones that need to repent, but clearly we see that the church needs to repent. We need to repent. Disobedient Christians need to repent, and if we do not repent, if we do not allow God to deal with the sin in our lives, with the sin in our church, ultimately what we're told is that we're going to be judged. We're going to be held account for it, and so... We who have an ear to hear, may we hear what the, what the Spirit says to the church today. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for this time together. Thank you for this admonishment, this encouragement, this, this rebuke. Lord, I love your word because it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it is profitable for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God, so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work that you have for us. And Lord, we want to be profitable in the things that you've called us to do. Lord, we want to look at things the way that you look at things. And so, Lord, for, for our lives today, for our church today, we, we receive you as the Son of God who has the, the penetrating eyes, Lord, to look deep into the things that no one else can see outwardly. And that you would expose and reveal and bring it to the surface. And Lord, that we would see that it's a blessing. It's a kind thing that you're doing so that we may repent. And we may come into agreement with you. So that we may be cleansed and purified. And in the meantime, Lord, as you're doing that, may we persevere, be faithful in our, in our works, in our service, in our love, in our faith. So that people may know you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.